It's been a real joy looking at Alto's work, I have to say. He, you know, as an architect, um, or when I was a student, you know, Alto, you know, loomed large. And revisiting his work has been a real delight, I think, for me. I think the, the way that he was not rigid in the way that he used plans and forms, the way that he delighted in, in the use of light, both electric and, and daylighting, I think, has been a real revelation to me. Mm. I, I don't know what... I, I, he, um, I think, for many architects, was really so influential in the way that he seemed to have a, a great deal of adaptability to the way he, he, he solved problems. Mm. Yeah, definitely university. We yeah studied um, Alva a lot as well, and um, but it it it, I don't, it wasn't really to do with as much light, like wasn't focused as much on lighting. It was more focused on sort of the transition from externally into his buildings and how it related with the natural environment and the yeah. materiality and the composition of elements and how they related formally. You're quite right. It's, it's, it's as though there has been an emphasis when looking at Alto on the plan, the forms of the building, and so on. But I, I think it kind of misses the point from what I can see. Is I think his understanding of, of, of lighting mm-hmm. is sort of impeccable. It's not an add-on. It's not something that kind of, oh, I've created this space, let's now light it. it sort of integral to his buildings was the art of daylighting Mm. which i think every contemporary designer needs to actually reflect on a little bit (laughs) why do you say that (laughs) um well i I mean it's like being like yeah a predominantly lighting designer i predominantly use electric lighting or come into situations where the form and the, the building is essentially mostly resolved and it's about okay well what can we like what do we need to highlight within this space or how do we light this space like well with electric lighting um but it it's it's like well do we need to start going back to the to the beginning and having this conversation much earlier and why why do we often depart from that a little bit like why why is the formal the formal nature of something or the materiality of something or the objects that we place within the space have become more important than what the light quality within the space is yeah i think i think you're quite right it's it's as though no object in an alto building takes precedence the space actually is the thing that is quite remarkable and the fact that he uses both daylight and electric lighting seamlessly. It's, 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 and he's not shy of the luminaire. It's as though the luminaire... I mean, there are so many, there's so many architects who want to conceal the light source, conceal it behind a piece of architecture in a coffer or in a whatever. But he, in a very modern um, interior, is quite happy to put six different light sources in there, six different types of luminaires, quite happily, all coexisting, all doing what they need to do with these rather large uh, skylights. Mm. He's not afraid to use light for what light does best, which is illuminate the space. So in any of your research, did you come across any hints as to why this may have 
Well, primarily, I think he was fascinated with landscape. This uh, this idea of the being in the forest, the idea of sunlight, the idea of out of uh, rocky, you know, places, you know, light coming through trees, coming through leaves, and things like that. That filtration. My, my sense is that he was creating a kind of a model landscape. I think the form of the building. Uh, the form of the interior and I think you have to view Alto's work as primarily as an interior architect some may disagree with that but I I do think his strength is his interior architecture so we don't let's say when we looked at Mies van der Rohe you know it was very much about the exterior of the building and the way it worked with uh, you know the city the, the the urban design I can't imagine visiting an Alto building and not experiencing the interior. I mean, he seemed to understand that the whole arrival point, one of the features of his work was always a very generous lobby area. That's particularly true in his library buildings. And then the sort of journey in and around the interior spaces. Certainly nothing wrong with the exterior spaces, but the exterior spaces only really make sense when you've understood the interior as far as i can see Mm. i mean i think in some of his some of his work it was well it was based around sort of the traditional notions of a you know a piazza or you know supporting that central courtyard he was very influenced by you know italian hilltop towns an incredibly prolific career uh, and spanned you know a number of um, different places do you think that the sort of light quality of those sort of Scandinavian countries, how, how do you think that affects, you know, the work of any architect? Do you think that kind of plays a role? Yeah, I mean, having been to Scandinavia a couple of times in the last couple of years, it's, it's a common question and it's a common thing that I suppose designers talk about is that, oh, because they have such a, 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 a huge difference between the summer light quality and the winter light quality in terms of, its duration, um, then in the midst of winter, light becomes very important because um, <laughs> there's not there's not a lot of natural light available. So it's about what you know. How do we light these spaces that still allow people to sort of interact at night time? And how do we create a warm glow that when you come out in when it's cold, that's you know is comforting. And um, yeah, you can definitely definitely see that I think across the board. Um, places and spaces and cities within, you know, Scandinavia. Um, uh, it's, it, there's a little bit more consideration, definitely, with with regards to the electric lighting system. How do we view it? Um, this we we do our podcast from Melbourne, Victoria, and <laughs> <in> Australia. <laughs> abundant lighting, abundant light. Do well, you see? What do you think yeah. of the differences? I mean, I think in a, definitely towards the south in Australia there because we do get sort of you know in the middle of our winter we 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 obviously have a lot a reduced light quality um so i think it's a little bit more important um when if you go north into sort of into queensland even in the middle of you know winter there you still have a lot of daylight available so So the scarcity of light actually becomes a feature of his work the scarcity of light is actually something that he actually plays with but I suppose that the kind of the softer quality, shall we say, of the light in those Scandinavian countries, I've not visited Scandinavia, but um, suggests to me that, you know, 
the resource itself is much more valued by architects and by people because yeah, of the scarcity of it. Because you don't realise the value of something until you don't have it. Correct. <laughs> but also, I wonder whether the, the, the softness or the indirect nature... Softness is not the right word. It's not a term I like to use, but it's more that the lower light level possibly makes it a little bit easier to manage um, in an interior space. Yeah, and I, th- I think it's something in which in today's... I mean, there's a really interesting metaphor, I think, in the research here today is that when they first talked about that, when they released the, the first incandescent sources, that everyone was blown away by how bright they were. Um and that the main goal was to conceal them. So you had all this luminaire development, which was to indirectly, you know, to distribute the light within the space, which has produced most of the luminaires that we still look back to today in sort of in a, in a pioneering way. Um, and then we have, you know, technology now, which produces, you know, 10 times the amount of light, or no, actually a lot more than that from, from a very small source. And so we're dealing with the same issues, but on a much larger scale. And yet... If we look at an incandescent light source directly now, which I still, you know, have within my space as well, is like it's not it's not difficult for me to look at that directly. So is it, it are we like rapidly evolving to <laughs> to accept brighter and brighter light sources? Well, and possibly, we've become accustomed to we've become accustomed to light. Yeah, and within our urban environment as well. So when we walk outside at night now, it's it's a lot brighter than it would have been in the nineteen twenties. So daylight has a has a, um, you know if we rely on daylight to illuminate our interior spaces, which we have to in terms of meeting certain regulations typically, but we with daylight comes the issue of managing heat and managing the loss of heat and managing the gain of heat. We know that daylight is only available more or less for 12 hours in every day, depending on the season, obviously. Um, and we know that it has it's a sort of an unreliable light source in that you know we might have a particularly cloudy and gloomy day, which at which point we need to rely on electric lighting. So daylighting you know like all the images that we will see of a, an alto building were presumably photographed when it's well lit externally so one of the prob- but you know that's the joy of daylighting isn't it that you can get those gloomy days and you can you know you can get lower level light, lower levels of light um that's what our eyes are great at doing and it? eyes are great doing between it. eyes can need. adapt to that but the lighting industry itself or, or regulation around around lighting seems to prescribe a, a specific... Um, Quite uh, static. A static, yeah. A certain light level, mm. 350 lumens, uh, lux, sorry, at desk level, you know. Um, and it's kind of crazy, isn't it? That we can't... Yeah, I mean, I suppose it's like most regulation is that it's developed to meet sort of the median requirements for a population or a data set and although you know there's a huge amount of 
population that sits outside of that medium which could which could deal you know with a lot less or a lot more um that's sort of the prescribed treatment on the average um which yeah has sort of led to a lot of these homogeneously lit spaces which if we look at his earlier work that's you know a lot of them did have that sort of I mean, a beautiful daylight quality but it was still quite um homogenous in its actual lighting distribution which which served the function of those spaces i mean lighting essentially in the early days of well sorry in the early 20th century shall we say primarily buildings relied on daylighting for its primary source of light electric lighting was supplementary Mm -hmm. now we've reached a point with led technology where you could wholly rely on uh, uh, electric lighting to light a space. Mm. Uh, in fact, you being a lighting designer can tell me if this is correct or not. You essentially, mm. your calculations don't really factor in external lighting or exterior lighting from daylight. Um, yeah, most calculations are done in, well, yeah, for standards have to be done in a um, completely un- no daylight environment. So you might put, you know, external light sources in there, but they'll usually be electric light sources that may exist in the street or something like that. But I suppose it, uh, it sort of asks the question that if we think about this on a long, like in a continuum, are we just heading to a point where we have no daylight? Because if we sort of, if we sort of tracked the amount of daylight in buildings across the across the board, within all of developments and all architecture. Is it is it getting to a point where it's just slowly diminishing to a point where we just supplement everything with the electric? Well, I hope not. <laughs> I, I genuinely hope not because I think one of the things... I think if you think about architecture, you know, and I think Alto um, is exemplary in this, is that essentially architecture, from what I can see, from my, my views of architecture, is that it is essentially the art of daylighting. Mm. whether it be a cathedral whether it be a house whether it be a tin shed whether it be you know they're just all large luminaires essentially (laughs) the fabric of the building with its apertures to the outside let light into that interior space and the interior quality is is derived from daylight as far as i can tell think about the pantheon Mm. any sorts i mean certainly the building externally is shaped by daylight you know the the form of the building and you know whether it's the path pantheon sorry parthenon in in uh, greece um you know sydney opera house you know any sort of office building you know the light sculpts the facade and you know that the play of light on the external facade is really important i don't think we'll see a time where electric lighting takes that over but I think on the interior side, historically, the way in which windows and skylights, any aperture to the outside, you know, the way it lets light in, the way that that light infuses that space and brings to, to life those spaces is really, you know, our architect's understanding of daylighting. Mm. So to rely wholly on electric lighting to shape the interior i think is a bit certainly you know if you go to a cinema or if you go to a planetarium or if you go to a casino or if you go to a shopping mall 
the the effects of artificial lighting or electric lighting is much more pronounced because those lights are really creating a theatrical event you know the use of color the use of you know directional lighting and intensity <coughs> intensity yeah. which is where which is where it you know sort of found its way into architecture in many ways as well is is you know the theater industry sort of crossovered into architecture i can definitely see that there is a bigger shift away from you know the art of daylighting in architecture because i think i think there is a commercial pressure to to create bigger and bigger buildings deeper footprints you know you know many many floors on top of each other so the opportunity to get daylighting into buildings is actually more difficult plus you've got to manage the heat load uh, from from the sun which in a, in a place like Australia can be intense when you can rely on something you know like electric lighting which can be managed which has a sort of um, you know it's fixed to some degree you know it's either on or off we know the calculations on terms of how much heat and how much uh, how many what the light output is you have much more control but in doing that we lose i think the joy of daylight the joy of 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 connection to the to the outside environment and i you know i fear for somewhat for the future of architecture if we continue to go down that path where we rely more and more heavily on electric lighting mm. and on that note we should probably raise the point that anthony recently installed some luminaires in his skylights <laughs> so that he could wirelessly change the color of the light within the walls yes you're quite right thank you for bringing up that point jackson um so uh i uh, well <laughs> i'm on the spot <laughs> I put those lights in, which are color-changing LEDs, into a, into a skylight because I wanted to see how the technology worked. Thank you very much, but I I didn't do it in lieu of the skylights. But um, <laughs> look, no. I think the, the the really fascinating thing about lighting technology is just how far it can go. I mean, it is quite incredible the the way in which LED lighting the way that you can get color-changing LED, the way that you can manipulate electric lighting to the extent that we can manipulate it is just beyond belief. Mm. But it pales into insignificance when you get that burst of sunlight, the, the kind of myriad of reflections that happen with um, daylighting in an architecture space. So, and you can't, you cannot, no electric light has the light output of the sun let's face it the, the sun is just incredible it is just <laughs> hundred thousand lux yeah. you know considering how far incredible. away it is okay. considering how far away it is i Consider think the other interesting thing from the research is that they had this new you know lamp technology the incandescent lamps um you know they, they sort of came into being in the early 1900s and then by the 1920s late 1920s i think ph series was developed in 1927 around then so who distributes the ph series now we should say uh well louis poulson yes but i don't know the connection did they did they commission sure. hennings henningson um anyway so so technology early 1900s 
then you see luminaire design sort of you know 1920s late 1920s and then you also see that all the way through alva's work um even like his probably most uh interesting luminaire design was more at the sort of 19 late 1940s post-war um early 1950s and when he started to cut holes in the side of things to project onto walls but also have a downward distribution so we're talking like a 50-year period there of development of luminaires and that's what i think so exciting about people say that things are moving so fast in today's world i still don't think we've we've made a lot of like headway in terms of luminaire design with regards to leds in terms of producing a uniquely ambient light source within a space because right now we're still sort of placing them within a lot of luminaires that were designed during that era mm-hmm. and they're still seen as like the the best we can do it's it's so the- so correct me if i'm wrong what you're saying so let me just put it in in non-lighting designer terms back in the day we had you know incandescent lights the way in which the luminaire design and others we had fluorescent lighting and 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 other forms of lighting but light source essentially the luminaire design from that period we have not evolved dramatically in with the evolution of led lighting is that what you're saying uh jackson i still think we're in the early phases i mean in terms of um the only, only major probably change is that, well, two changes is distribution. I think because of the development of optics and things like this is um, we can we can distribute light in, you know, a whole array of different ways that we used to be able to, so very, very precisely. Um, and second is we can manipulate the color of that light source. But which we didn't have the opportunity to do, which architects didn't have the opportunity to do in the early, early evolution of lighting. No, well, unless yeah, through dimming the actual incandescent source, and it's it does slowly change colour, but um, yeah, not not to the same degree that we can do with LED. It, but it seems to me what what I'm hearing is that we are getting better at uniformity with lighting. Yeah, we're getting better at placing light exactly where we want to place yeah. it. Um, Whereas when you look at Alto's work, whether it's the way he uses daylighting or whether it's the way he uses electric lighting, you have the, the, the joy of the lighting seems to come from its light and shade. The fact that he still has a kind of sense of hierarchy of what's important or, you know, there's, you know visually it's not confusing. But it seems to me that no matter which building you look at, the joy is in the is in the the unevenness of the lighting. Exactly, and he's, yeah, definitely his light of work. It's it, and you, you, although we can you know create dynamic lighting effects with light sources these days, which are programmed essentially, um, daylight always has has that natural variability mm. of um, you know cloud comes over it diffuses the light you get a different light quality internally than you you know you had before and you sort of get this constant dynamic effect which we have no control over um which is is kind of a beautiful thing as well so let's say i go off to a a shopping center that's got a massive great big skylight or a dome in the middle where all the arcades meet or i don't know there might be an arcade with a long strip 
of lighting through it. You know, Alto didn't invent the clerestory light. He didn't invent he didn't invent uh, luminaire design. So what makes Alto so good, in your opinion? <laughs> or maybe he wasn't that good. Maybe we just think of him as good. For me, it's the, it's the combination. It, he didn't seem to have um, a preference over electric or daylight. I mean, not not so, not, not preference. So it's the wrong word. I think better word is like a favorite. <laughs> he saw the value of both of them, and then really combined them within his spaces to create, um, yeah, the, the best possible scenario that he could in terms of a hierarchy, something that directs your eye around the space, something that harvests something that is naturally dynamic and that can manipulate the space and create beauty within that space. Um, I I think it would be fair to say that he favours daylight over electric lighting. I mean, I I get what you're saying. He doesn't see that... He sees the value of electric lighting, but I think his primary light source is the the daylight. Yeah, no, I, I can agree with that. Which, which came from him testing with electric light source. Sure. <laughs> sure. But, yeah, I don't know. What's, what's, what, 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 what's well, your answer to that? See, you know, like you can look at Alto's work and see lots of things that are very pretty commonplace today. You know, you see a skylight, you see bands of concrete or, you know, shelves in a row and, you know, strip lights and, and, and things like that. Um, compositionally, he was an absolute master. You know, he seems to get the hierarchy of elements in a very modern uh, language incredibly right. You know, it, 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 there's a sense of uh, cohesion to his work. There's a sense that he is very relaxed in the way that he uses, you know, he, he, he composes space. So it feels very natural. This connection to nature, I think, is... Um, you know, it's not, it's not like it's organic. It's not like it's, you know, lots of timber and, you know, kind of seagrass kind of stuff. That's not what it is. It's kind of like he takes the essence of um, nature and distills it into a piece of modern architecture and lighting plays a really integral part of it. And I think one of the problems with the analysis of Alto, from what I can see, is they, they tend to think of his... You know, they tend to be fixated with his plans, the sort of organic shapes, the vases that he created and so on. But I think that what what actually is really relevant about his work is that he understood nature and he was able to transfer his understanding of nature and light and timber and those things into a really beautiful poetic sense of what space means. Mm. To me, that's what's really beautiful about his work. There are some buildings that are better than others. His libraries, I think, in particular, demonstrate, I guess, a very human side to his work. Libraries, you know, where you go to learn, you read. The human eye is really critical to being able to, you know, read and enjoy what you, the space that you're in. Seems to distill his idea about architecture the best, more so than he says residential work and, and other things, because... And more so than we looked into his churches, you may recall, and I didn't find them terribly interesting. Well, you know, they were good compositionally; they were good, but they were a little bit um, 
contrived, I thought. Whereas these libraries are spaces that I could imagine spending, you know, easily a whole day reading. You know, they were very comfortable spaces. Spaces that you would like to go and explore. Places that you could, you know, comfortably sit in and read a book. Much like you would in a park, you know, or a forest. So to me, his work very much has this feeling of being inspired by nature, connected to nature, and belonging to nature. And on that note, maybe we should talk <laughs> about what we're thinking about next time. Well, it's been a long time because we've been in lockdown in Melbourne for, well, the best part of a year, to be honest. We had a little bit of a break. We had a couple of weeks break, but we didn't we, actually yes, get a recording all, done in there. We've all put on a bit of weight, I think. <laughs> <laughs> um, we thought we would look into someone who specifically looks at um, light. As a medium. As a medium. You know, we're thinking of looking into the big name of Mr. Terrell. I yeah, hope. we could look at Terrell. Um, there's a there's a few different options in that category, isn't there? It's, um, um, I suppose it, it'll be like this process is that we'll start researching a couple <laughs> and then one of them will really pop out and we'll be like, okay, that's what we're going to do. Well, so. I don't think we could find someone who's uh, diametrically opposed to um, Alto because in Alto's work we see this incredible variability. Now, I'm, I'm no expert on Terrell, but... Um, what is incredible about his work is the uniformity of the way he he can use light yeah i think he's also it's his experimentation in his more like commissioned pieces as well that are for galleries that are, that are interesting and yeah um understanding how your eye works and how it adapts which yeah, is incredibly technical in the way that he, he he does understand that so um i think if we can leave this episode of Alto <laughs> with, uh, I don't know, just a little um, after dinner mint at the end kind yeah, of moment. I, just, I, I, th- I think, I, I mean, just as an architect who's been working as an architect for a long time now since uh, I've been an architect for longer than I've not been an architect, so that might give you some um, indicate my age somewhat. But it um, <laughs> it was really re uh, refreshing to visit his work, and and I, I, uh, apart from all the things that I said before, his ability to be very relaxed in the way that he uses composition to embed his buildings into landscape to see the the effects of nature um, influence the buildings and still create very modern buildings is something to behold. So I would encourage lighting designers and architects to delve into Alto. And I think we should give a big shout out to Timu, our friend, (laughs) our podcast friend who steered us towards Alva Alto as well um, and highlighted the importance of his work because um, he kind of steered us down this route but we kind of arrived there on our own as well um, to say thank you 
again because uh, his input has been really important to this podcast. Definitely. And um, I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to actually going to see one of our those buildings uh, in sometime in the future, just like we've seen some other buildings that well, we've talked about. you've been to Scandinavia more times than I have, so I have, but I mean, you've got no excuse. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't been to Finland. Um, I've been to Sweden. Uh, I haven't been to Norway. Um, so I think... Pre- I'm not sure if he has any buildings in Sweden, to be honest, but I think predominantly they're mostly in Finland. Well, he's done some in Germany. He's done some in America. He's he. The other thing about him, and we'll probably need to stop at this point, but he's incredibly prolific. Uh, that's mm. the other thing. As an architect, you know, working away, it is quite remarkable just the quantity of work and the, 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 the span of uh, his portfolio. He did industrial buildings, he did churches, he did offices, he did libraries, he did just... Um, he just didn't let up. So, well, we sh- on that note, we should definitely mention um, that he he wasn't alone. That is true. He um, was married to a an architect as well. Uh, uh, his wife, architect Inu, it's A I N O Alto. Um, it was definitely uh, a huge influence in all this work and probably you know predominant force in producing it as well as as many of the works that we read stated he was also married a second time to Alyssa, who uh. died in 1994 so not so long ago and just on that biography alto was born in 1898 and died in 1976 so um a long life uh, 78 by the time he died but i think just the um, just the magnitude of his work is is something to behold. Yeah, to think that he died forty two years ago, which is quite significant. Yeah. All right. Until episode seven, we'll sign off on that note. Thanks, and, Jackson. Uh, cheers. We'll see you next time.